0: If you're new here, my name is Tyler Hardy. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Antioch. And um, we're wrapping up a series we've been doing for the last three weeks. It's week four called Him and Them. And um, just to give you a bit of an outline of, of what it's been about, it's simply this When we understand that life is less about me and more about Him and them, then we can actually experience the fullness that God has for us the fullness of life, the fullness of purpose. The fullness of joy. But unless you're in alignment with his desires and his ways, you just can't experience that. You can't be in the blessing if you're outside of the blessing of God. And so if we get our our minds and our hearts set on his priorities, which is about life is about him, honoring him, loving him, worshiping him, and serving and loving the people around us, then is when we actually experience that abundant life that Jesus promised us. Now, the first few weeks we looked at just the reality of the Garden of Eden and what happened there, which is Adam and Eve sinned against God. They had this amazing relationship. Next thing you know, they eat of the wrong tree that they were told not to do. They disobey God. Then all of a sudden, separation occurs. That relationship is now broken, and sin enters the world. And 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 we know that as you journey through the story in the Old Testament, you see that the prophets and the stories are building towards this moment in time to where God would send his son Jesus to be the ultimate sacrifice. That yearly sacrifices at a temple or sacrificing an animal and then saying that animal is now going to take on my sins, that was not going to work. That system had uh, had its own limitations. But that God said, I'm going to send my son Jesus, who would ultimately be the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God who is perfect, and only he, No one else in history, only he, would have the ability to take on the sins of the world to actually make us right back with God again. And so that's what Jesus did. And so we talked about look, as you come to know Jesus, there's a next step in the equation, which is as you enter the kingdom of God, which is what happens when you give your life to Jesus, is now there's an opportunity to actually get to know God. Instead of just saying, wow, I've now been saved, it's actually now I've been saved to something, to a relationship. And so you have to develop that relationship with God. And we talked about just encouraging every one of us to actually have a devotional life, to actually spend time with him. Just as Kent said, we, we harp on people being involved in our life groups because we see it biblically. We talked about that last week looking at the book of Acts in terms of what did the church do? They gather together in homes. They gather together as well at the temple. And so here we are, we get to gather together. And I told someone this morning, they're brand new here. I said, actually, what Sundays are, it's just a bunch of life groups coming together to celebrate and to learn, and to fellowship. And then we go back to our homes, and then we come together and celebrate. It's the church gathering and the church scattering, which is very biblical. That's what we're supposed to do. It's not the church gather, 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 never scatter. It's also not the church just scatter, 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 never gather. It is both and. There has to be something happening to where we are encouraged, we're in fellowship we are sharing testimonies, right? To where that's happening, we're learning from the Word of God, we're able to pray for one another and over each other. And then from that place, we then go into our workplace and into our neighborhoods. That's what life is about, and that's what today is. Today, as we wrap this up, we are talking about the mission of God, right? We have three core values here at Antioch. They're to love God, love one another, and live on mission. Not real complicated. Um, And they're not our idea. They're Jesus' idea, right? In Mark 12, 30, 31, when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Many of you may know this. He said, what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, your neighbor is twofold. It's someone that you're actually in fellowship with and a fellow Christian or brother, or sister in Christ, and it's someone who's not. They're still neighbors. Neighbor is a proximity thing, right? It's not a belief thing. It's actually a proximity thing. And so your neighbors, you have neighbors all over the places, whether it's a school or, 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 or where you live, or if you work with someone at a restaurant or whatever it may be, we all have neighbors. And so we are called to actually love both ends, not just the people in this room, but the people outside of these walls. So today we're gonna be talking about how do we love the people outside of these walls? Well, in the summer of 2016, um, there was a mass migration happening from the Middle East into Europe that has not happened uh, maybe ever, um, but certainly in modern day history. As you know, the crisis in Syria that happened along with, with, with ISIS and their rampage in Iraq and Afghanistan and other places you had this crisis of people leaving as refugees because they were literally fearing for their lives, rightfully so, and trying to go westward. So people started literally walking. They'd take boats. They got on buses. And they literally were making trails into Europe to try to find refuge, to hopefully apply for asylum and hopefully claim asylum and be, and be in a new country. <clears throat> well, 1.3 million people in, that, uh, in, in 2016 applied for asylum in Europe, which is a lot of people. The majority of those being Syrians, and then the bulk of the rest of them being Afghans and, and uh, Iraqis. And so these people are coming. And so we saw this happening as the church and said, okay, wow, there's something happening in Europe. What do we do? So we pulled together as the 30 U, uh, US Antioch churches together and started praying and talking and saying, we're going to do something. So we came up with this project called Engage the Crisis. And so what did we do? We actually took people um, and, and, uh, and, and, and we rallied interns, we rallied uh, uh, bases, and we actually got into six countries in Europe for that summer. And so we had a base in Brussels, Belgium, right? Because refugees were coming, hoping to resettle themselves or hoping just to escape. They weren't really sure where they were going. And so we had people there. And um, what is so encouraging is that we essentially put it forth at all the churches saying, hey, who wants to go? We had 1,800 people. Sign up, raise money, and go to Europe that summer. Okay, I was talking to someone who was connected to someone who's really um, uh, involved in all the different mission work going on in Europe. And they had said, through all their connections and networks, through all the different organizations and churches they had connected with, they were trying to get a total on how many Christians were actually coming to Europe to help minister these refugees. And their total was 3,500 people for the entire summer, of which we were half of. It was mind blowing. I share that because we just thought, hey, there's going to be tens of thousands of people from America, particularly, coming over to help. And in the end, we actually our little group of 30 churches comprised half of everyone going over there. And we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't have much of a plan, honestly. We just knew these people are fleeing, right? And when there's a crisis, you don't have some 10-point plan. There's a crisis. You just kind of run to it, right? And you just, we're going to help these people. And so it was, it was clunky on the way. And what do we do? And how do you get connected to people? But here's, here's what I want to say. By us responding to that need, it produced people now who, who were able to hear about Jesus for the first time, many of which gave their lives to Christ, many of which were then water baptized, many of which then started discipleship groups where they would start meeting together and just open up the Bible for the first time and start reading it. The majority of these people were from Muslim background. Majority of these people were fleeing a situation that was dire. And they came, and our people loved them. I think I was looking back to the stats. It was over 10,500 men, women, and children were served in some very practical way by our teams going, either in food or shelter or clothing or different um, uh, trauma care, different things that were happening to them. It was incredible to see the church at work. But why did I share that? Because that is the mission of God. That is the heart of God, that we would jump into a crisis, and that we would go there. I remember Ashley and I got a chance to go there briefly, and we were with some of our team. We went into this little chateau in Brussels. So at the time, imagine Europe and refugees coming. They don't know where to put them. And so there's a couple hundred people in this chateau in Brussels. And it was kind of restricted access. Somehow our team had gotten favor to get in there. So we go in there walking around one day and just seeing the little kids and loving on them. And we come across these three older men. And they're all from Syria. And so we start talking to them. And, um, and we're trying to use a translator to kind of share with them and stuff and just... Ask him how we can pray for him, the different things. As we're there, my wife, Ashley, just gets this word from the Lord. She just feels like the Holy Spirit's telling her there's something wrong with this guy. Like, he has some sort of pain in, in his stomach area and his, his actual body. And so we're sitting there, and she says, do you have any pain in your body? And looks at him. And he just gets like, "Why not?" He takes his shirt and lifts it up, and there's a bullet hole that had gone through his stomach. He'd been shot about a week and a half prior to us meeting him in Syria, had somehow escaped and traveled out. Had gotten bandaged up by someone along the way on the road just to stop the bleeding, has no surgery or anything. It's starting to get infected. And so he's like, his buddies are like, how did she know that? I mean, now they're getting a little freaked out. And she's like, I know that because Jesus just told me that you've got pain. And he's telling me that because he wants you to know that he sees you where you are. And we're gonna share with you how much he loves you. So we're able to share the gospel with them I wish I could tell you right then, they were like, we're all in with Jesus. That wasn't the case, but I can tell you it's the very first time they ever heard of him. They never heard of him in their life. They never knew of a God that actually would love them, to rescue them, to forgive them. They didn't know that. Now, they were trying to grapple with that. But man, I'll tell you what, because we're partnering with the Holy Spirit, and he's like, hey, this guy's got some pain here, and went out and took a risk, all of a sudden God is meeting them in that place. But that's what it was all summer long. There were thousands of those stories all summer long across Europe, of just showing up and saying, I don't know. We can't do it in our own strength. We don't have some really cool plan. We're just here to meet needs of people. And so, Spirit of the living God, you come and help us to know how do we meet the needs of the people. Now, I want you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, because what that whole summer was about is we get that from here. In Acts chapter 1, just to set it up, Jesus is some of his last words to his disciples and He's talking to them, and right before he's about to go and ascend, literally this crazy moment of him literally uh, uh, elevating up into heaven, and and all of a sudden, these guys are like, where are you going? He's like, hey, I will come back, but I'm going right now, and by the way, you guys need to hang out here for a little while, so let's just get into it. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4 through 7, it says, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So what are they asking? They're asking, um, hey, Jesus, when are you going to make everything right again? Right? Because they thought, hey, he's the king, he's the ruler. When are you going to make all the pain all the suffering, all the wars, all the poverty. When are you going to make it all go away, Jesus? Can you just tell us when so we can get excited about that? You know, and Jesus responds with this. Well, it's not up to you to know that. Like, they're asking, when are you going to return? When is this going to happen? He's saying, well, you don't know. You know why I love that he never told us when he's coming back? Because it keeps us on the edge, right? Like, if you know the end day, you kind of just get a little comfy. Well, five years from now, I don't know if I should keep sharing. Who probably should... Joy, what I got, or, you know, I don't know. I've kind of lined it out here, and also we go analytical cool about it. But he literally says, Guess what? Nobody knows when Jesus is returning one day. So, this encouragement for you, no matter what you read or what you hear, nobody knows. Nobody knows. Because if somebody knows, then all of the Bible is a big fat lie. Because it's either it's the whole thing or it's nothing. There's no partial belief. It's either you're all in or you're all out, right? And so the words of Jesus are true. Or they're not. And so he's saying, hey, nobody knows. The Father knows that. It's not for you to know that. So don't really worry about it. So encouragement to all of us that are into the end time stuff. He's saying right here, don't worry about it. He's saying, worry about the people right in front of you that need to know about the first coming of Jesus. Not the second coming. They haven't heard about the first. Why are you talking about the second? Why are you studying the second? Unless you're spending your time telling everybody about the first time Jesus came to earth and died on the cross and rose from the grave to redeem us and restore us back to the Father... Don't spend your time studying the other stuff. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I'm saying a lot of times we put an emphasis on things that we don't know because we're trying to make predictions, and really what it is, it's escaping the reality of to be on mission with God right now. Well, one day it will be when I figure all this out. No, you won't. You'll just, it'll get more in your head. My encouragement to you is just do both. Study and practice at the same time. That's what he's called us to do. Amen? So here we go in Acts 1.8. He says, hey, you don't know what time, but I'm going to tell you something here that you need to know. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So that's what we're going to stick on today, all right? Acts 1, verse 8, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, this charge, I believe, is not just for the fishermen and ex-tax collectors that Jesus just recruited to be his disciples. I don't think he's just saying to them, hey, just you guys, that's it. Because what we know actually happens in Acts chapter 2, when they are in Jerusalem, there's 120 of them gathered up in this room, we call it townhome, they're in downtown Jerusalem, And the Holy Spirit comes upon them in a crazy way by distributing languages to different people in the room. They start now speaking different languages they do not know about the glory of God and who Jesus really is. 3,000 people hear all this crazy commotion going on. They make their way down there. They start listening in their own language to people talk about who God really is and who Jesus is. And he died for us and rose from the grave and all of that. And all of a sudden it says that 3,000 people got saved, right? And then the church started. Like, that's how the church started, this crazy, multi-ethnic, commotion-driven thing where people realize, oh, my goodness, this Jesus that we just wrote off, that we just heard was crucified, he was the real deal? Yes. They say, what must we do? And Peter says, repent. (laughs) Repent and come clean. Come to him for the forgiveness of sins. That's how the church started. The church started that way. And so what does he say here in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says you're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing. You're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit. Now, that word power in the Greek is dunamis. Dunamis, all right? It means miraculous power, might, strength, power through God's ability. It's also the root word for dynamite, right? So dynamite, you think power, you think dynamite. I mean, Trust me, all the boys in the room, not Minigan girls, just all the boys, you thought about having black cats or M60s or M80s and throwing them at each other, right? Lighting them, 4th July, maybe I'm the only person that did that. Um, <laughs> but we were enamored with this like explosive little thing, right? You get to play around with around 4th July. So dynamite, it's explosive. It also is, is the root word, dunamis is the root word for dynamic, right? Dynamic, that is continuous and productive activity, continuous and productive activity. So let's talk about the Holy Spirit for a second. Is the Holy Spirit just a come and go person? No, right? Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan, comes out. Father says, this is my son of whom I'm well pleased. It says the Holy Spirit comes upon him in the form of a dove. And then it says the dove flies away. No, it doesn't say that. Comes upon him and then he gets up and walks out and the Holy Spirit stays on him. For the rest of his life. So the Holy Spirit, the power of God is upon you. That means you don't like walking the door and like like a like a hat, you put it on the rack. You don't do that. Holy Spirit, stay right here. I'll get to you tomorrow. <laughs> right? Or, hey, Holy Spirit, I'm wearing you here at church, but when we leave and go to the restaurant, I need to put you to the side for a second. The Holy Spirit, this power in essence, is this continuous, productive activity, this kind of power. <clears throat> you know, um, Jesus could have said, hey guys, you've been with me this whole time. You've seen me do miracles. You've seen me love on little kids. You've seen me go toe-to-toe with the Pharisees. You've seen how my prayer life is and how I live and how I will have meals with anyone and everyone. I'm telling story. I get to live my life and I'm loving. I'm, I'm displaying the kindness of God. Remember Jesus, says, in him the fullness of God dwelt, meaning that you could look at Jesus and say, oh, this is what God is like. Oh, this is what God is like. That was Jesus. You would have thought that wouldn't have been enough, right, for them to say, okay, man, we've studied you, Jesus. We've heard you. We've taken great notes. We've been, I mean, either, even a few of them, right, Peter and James and John kind of trying to jostling for position there. That, hey, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a hardcore disciple. I'm all in. You would have thought that would have been enough for Jesus to say, great, I'm going now. You guys got it. You've taken all the notes. You got all the principles just right. You remembered everything. Good. Now go right? But he says, um, you actually need the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Because if you don't have the Holy Spirit, then what are you doing? You're actually just going off the principles and off your own knowledge and off your own experience. But you know, my, my wife, if she went off of that, there's no way she would have said, hey, you have pain in your body. She would have said, hey, Jesus is awesome and you should get to know him. They're like, okay, that's cool. But when she said you got pain in your body and the guy lifted his shirt up and his buddies were in shock, that did something. They're like, wait a second, there's something more here. (laughs) It's not just a written down religious law that they have lived their whole life. There is something more. There's a power of God that says, I love you and I see you right here. And this God, by the way, is so willing to humble himself in the form of Jesus to come onto earth, which by the way, no other religion proclaims that their God comes to earth because it's beneath them. But Jesus came to earth. Every religion says God would never do that. That's the stumbling block for many people. If God is so holy and good, why would he ever come down to our yucky earth? And God said, that's the only way for the rescue plan to happen. I've got to come down and be like you. Eat what you eat. See what you see. Experience what you experience at the same time. Be perfect and sinless. So that he then all of a sudden becomes our Lord, our model, our example, the greatest leader of all time. And this man, Jesus, he came. And although they studied his life, they needed the power of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, because ultimately, guys, our strategies will fail if they are not inspired and led by the Spirit of God. And If you don't believe me, just hang out in Christian circles enough and see how many great plans come and go that aren't Spirit-inspired. They won't make it. They sound really good, actually, but they won't, they won't make it, and they're not really transforming people. The, the second part of this you see here in Acts 1A is not only do you need to wait and receive the power of the Holy Spirit, but also be witnesses of me. He's saying, witnesses of Jesus. He's saying, don't be a witness of Antioch Church or a witness of your family tree, your family name, or even a witness of yourself. It's to be a witness of Jesus. You know, um, I was uh, thinking this last week, although I'm not an attorney or a judge, by no means. I've been invited to joyfully serve on some jury duties in recent years. It seems like it's increasing. I'm not sure why. But then someone told me, remember, college students are exempt from jury service. So I said, okay, that's why. Um, so I, I do with joy. I never get picked for some reason. I think they see pastor and they just write me off. So which, you know, so I'm usually in there just for half a day or something. Uh, I, hey, listen, I wouldn't mind being on it. I think it would be interesting uh, to see how that all goes. But so, so the, whole, the whole course system, I'm not real familiar, but here's what I know. And I did fact check this with a friend of ours in the church who's actually an attorney. So I'm about to say it's actually true. Okay, so... Um, in the court of law, there are three kind of main ways that you are able to communicate testimony, right? Um, to actually have something as, as, as real evidence. So one is, is to have a picture or a video taken of a person committing a crime. But depending on the quality of the picture or the angle of video, that could be ruled inaccessible. A second way to have testimony is for an eyewitness that testifies they saw a person doing something. Again, depending on how reliable that one person is, his or her testimony can also be thrown out, right? But the most powerful testimony of all is having two or more eyewitnesses say the same thing. Two or more eyewitnesses in court is almost irrefutable. It's very difficult to defeat the power of the testimony of two people saying the same thing. Now think about this for a second. Jesus in Luke chapter 10, right? He says this in verse one and two, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus sent out 72 followers and disciples of his to different towns where he was going, and he sent them out two by two. Why did he not say go as individuals, because he knew there is power in the testimony of two or more people saying, "Uh uh-uh, this Jesus is for real. This is what he's done in my life. I've seen them. I was there. Think about that, the power of that. Remember, God said to Adam, it's not good for man to be alone. There is this innate design by God, not just to live, but to be on mission together. Yes, there are missionaries that go off on their own as the solo guy, parachute dropping into the jungle good luck for that guy. They usually don't make it very long, right? Because you're actually meant to go in community, to go together. Because not every day are you going to feel 110%. You need encouragement. You need challenging. You need sharpening. And your testimony is more powerful when it comes from multiple people versus just one guy's memory of something that happened. That's how we function. There's a desire for us to be a people that should be witnesses of Jesus. And so when you go out, and you witness, man, there's so much more powerful. Now, look, I understand that a lot of us, we don't work to get the same jobs or, 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 or whatever. But the point is this, is that when you gather together as a life group and you hear testimonies, it's powerful. It encourages you. And when you have the opportunity to meet with someone, I would encourage you to meet with someone at work. You're going to start some sort of Bible study group or discipleship group. Do it with a couple of people because there's power in that community. Again, we are called to be witnesses of Jesus first and foremost. The third thing we see here is that not only are you supposed to have the power of the Holy Spirit, so you don't go out in your own strength to be a witness of Jesus. But then, thirdly, is you're supposed to be a witness here and there, here and there. So I want to break down for you: Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Okay, I think we've got a, uh, a slide. We've got Brian College Station right here. Okay, so that's what that is. You're looking—is that some sort of paddle? Is that—is that Tyler's arm? No, that's actually Brian College Station. All right, highlighted right there. Um, And so, if you look at it this way, I would say, just just for explanation purposes, this would be like our Jerusalem, okay? So, let's talk about Jerusalem for just a moment. Um, So, number one, Jerusalem was a big city with a lot of diversity. People came from all over the place. Many people actually weren't from Jerusalem, but they had come there. So, when I ask the question, raise your hand if you were born in Bryan College Station. Okay. How many we got? About 10. Okay, last service, about the same. So about 20 people out of 1,200 at our church were actually born here. Wow, that's eye-opening, right? So in a way, we're kinda like Jerusalem. People came from all over, for, in our context, for education, for jobs, for different things. So you have this mixture of people. Now it's interesting, if you know about the disciples, remember Jesus recruited them out of what area? Galilee, right? But Jesus says, stay in Jerusalem, and then go to Judea. They weren't, they weren't Judeans. They were Galileans. That was like a different town, a different place. So by default, where they already lived was already cross-cultural. He said, start your ministry here. A lot of us want to think, I need to go back home with mom and dad and the family there. And that's not wrong, and that's actually great. But Jesus is telling them, actually, don't go back to Galilee right now. You can stay in this city right now, and you're going to start this stuff. And why Jerusalem? Because it was a city where... Ideas came, people came, and they went. It's interesting, people years ago said, hey, why are you planting a church in Bryant College Station? I said, because we want to be in a place where people come and go. They're like, what kind of church is that? Come on and then leave, right? No, like, but our, our mindset is literally, we're here to train people and send them out, not to train and retain. Now, some of you will stay here, and we actually need some of you to stay here. We just need a few people just to stay with us. It's helpful. The the their turnover rate can be challenging, all right? In all facets. So if you're thinking of staying here, I applaud that and I'm all about it, okay? Yes, Houston and Dallas pay better, but this is a better community, okay? So <laughs> let's just let's just be honest. You don't have traffic here, not much. Um and uh, and it's a great place to live. Okay. There's my little plug for Brian Calestation, stay here. That's a promo. I don't know. All right. So we have Brian Calestation, right? So like Jerusalem, this very mixed place, this very the first place. And what's encouraging is that in our own town, we actually have the opportunity to do cross-cultural mission work. Did you know that? So just a couple of weeks ago, very encouraging, 700, about 750 international students showed up on a Friday night to Anderson Park for a, for a bunch of food and, and worship and just like a concert and hangout time and to get the opportunity to maybe pick up some free furniture the next day to take back to their apartments. Because many international students come here, they don't, they're not bringing a suitcase full of beds and tables. They don't have much, so they come and they're looking for something. And so um, we partnered with Grace Bible Church and Declaration Church to just be available to love on these guys. And the goal is just to love them and just to serve them. And so we did that on Friday night, and tons of people came. Then on Saturday, people were given the opportunity to actually kind of take that furniture, and, and that would be delivered to them by trucks and different things around town. So one of our guys, Parker, he was just available like someone else and just started delivering stuff all day long on Saturday. And through that, got the opportunity to be in several people's homes. On top of that, he was able to initiate with a couple of guys Said, hey, do you just want to come have dinner with me? And so a couple of guys come over, and Parker's just being himself. He's just, he, he, is, he is, if you know Parker, you're like, man, the guy's just full of light, you know? But he's just being a witness of Jesus to these guys. The whole conversation isn't about Jesus. It's about who they are and where they're from and understanding them. Because, you know, remember, as a witness of Jesus, Jesus is actually really concerned with who the person is. This isn't, this isn't project ministry. This is people. So, like, know their name. <laughs> know where they're from. And you can share your story. But, but, but the heart of Jesus is to invite people into relationship. Not to force, not to sell, not to anything. It's invitational but if you just simply are a witness of what Jesus has done in your life, oh man, people are drawn to that. They're drawn to that. So Parker's just developing a relationship with these guys. Who knows where to go, but I think they're going to have him over for dinner soon. And, but it's, it's a simple way for us to say, you know what? We can actually get to know people in our own city if we're just willing just to serve them, just to bless them. It doesn't take a whole lot. So here in Jerusalem, that's what we've got here. Well, you look at Judea, right? Judea was this surrounding region beyond the city. So for us, I would kind of call this Texas, right? And so, and so you, you, have, you, you kind of merge into Texas, and look, we've got common interests. We're a little different east to west, north to south, but all in all, we're kind of a similar cultural area. And so Jesus is saying Jerusalem, spread out from there, and then from there, going to Samaria. Now Samaria, for me, I would kind of say is more like the U.S., okay? And so look, if you get someone from New York City, Seattle, Washington, San Fran, and College Station in the same room, there's gonna be some differences, you know? It's like the college issue guy, be like, howdy, expecting for a return, he ain't going to get it, you know? Um, Like, I remember my wife and I, our our one-year anniversary, we decided to do this kind of trip on the weekend to New York City, okay? So we used our miles, slept on someone's floor apartment, which in the end, I probably should have changed that, but whatever. We didn't have much then. So we're staying at someone's apartment deal over over in East Harlem, and, 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 and we're doing our deal, and we're walking around the city, and we're like, hey, we're in New York City. This is like all these movies are made, this is New York, you know, and so we're just like happy-go-lucky Texans, you know, I'm like, hey, how you doing, you know, just stone cold, I mean, nobody's smiling, you know, I'm like, do they not want us here, you know, someone help me understand, they're not angry, they're just not, they're not gonna smile at you, I like, okay, that's fair, right, because I was like, hey, what am I doing something wrong here, and they're like, well, they don't really talk to each other like that on the street, okay, so, you know, you get everyone mixed together, so we are Americans, but there's some real differences, right? And so you look at Samaria, there's this region that even they had some similar beliefs, right, as the Jews at the time, but there are some stark differences as well. But Jesus is saying, guess what? I'm not asking you just to go to people that are just like you, your same skin color, your same hobbies, your same personality type. I'm asking you to go to places that are actually going to make you a little uncomfortable. You're going to make you mix it up with people you thought you would never eat with, never befriend. And he can say that because that's what his whole life was. He did that time and time and time again. Jesus led the cross-cultural revolution in his day, and we are supposed to pick up the mantle. So you have Judea, Samaria, then the ends of the earth. Matthew twenty-four fourteen says this, in this gospel, the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And then the end will come. This has been the cry of our heart since the beginning. Matthew 24 14 is what drives us to do mission trips. It's what drives us to find opportunities in this city, to love on people and to do local missions. It's what drives us to push you to actually reach out to your coworker and your neighbor as awkward and uncomfortable as it may be at times. Because Jesus said this, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I don't know when he's coming back. I'm not that concerned about it. What I'm concerned about is do people have an opportunity to hear and respond in our city and the nations of the earth, in Texas, in the U.S. and beyond? And we have a small slice of that pie of responsibility to do that. We're not the only church in the world doing this. There's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of churches doing this worldwide, but we have a slice of pie that we have to own in the kingdom of God and saying our responsibility is to make sure that we are taking care of the areas that we are in. That's our job. You know, there used to be this saying years ago with with an Antioch, and it would be this, that we want to be a nameless and faceless generation. A nameless and faceless. What does that mean? That means that people aren't really looking at me and celebrating me, they're celebrating him. This whole series about him and them, what, what what it does, it puts you third in the equation all the time. It means I'm actually less concerned about all the stuff that I can bring to the table, all the gifting that I have and all the cool stuff. I'm actually more concerned about him getting glory, them being blessed and loved, and in the end, I'll get taken care of. To be nameless and faceless means you're actually not self-promoting yourself. You know, there's all sorts of mechanisms these days for us to self-promote. But that's not God's heart. God's heart is not self-promote yourself through the business, through the whatever it may be. It's actually to promote Him. The more He is seen, the less I'm seen. That's the bigger win. I want us to stand as we close today. I the band on up. <clears throat> Just to, to, to close, I... Came across a story this week that I thought um, would be helpful for us just to give us some context of what do we mean when we say, man, we're going to be a missional people? What's it mean to actually live on mission? It does mean here, right now, where we live in Bryan College Station, but it also means that we have to make tough choices at times. And I want to read you a story that just stirred my heart again and just made me question again, Lord, am I all in? Am I willing to do whatever is necessary to be part of fulfilling the Great Commission? Potentially in our lifetime. Chayun Sigurhara was born in what is now known as Mino City in Japan. His ambitious father wanted him to become a doctor. But instead, he studied English at a university. And it was there, this university, he had his first exposure to Christianity. He ended up joining a Christian fraternity in order to improve his command of English. Well, by 1939, when the Nazis were on the march in Europe... He was recruited for foreign ministry with the Japanese government and was to the consulate in Lithuania. As the war raged in Europe, thousands of Polish Jews escaped into Lithuania and in June 1940, the Soviets annexed Lithuania and ordered all embassies closed. It was now too late for Lithuanian Jews to escape but the Soviets agreed to allow Polish Jews to immigrate through the Soviet Union, provided they could obtain the necessary travel documents. Well, this man and his wife awoke one morning in July to a to a couple hundred people, desperate Polish shoes outside of the consulate, asking if they could get visas. He questioned and not knowing if he could. Siguhara needed permission from Tokyo. And at the time, the Japanese government would only authorize visas to people who had another visa for somewhere else other than Japan, which at the time was nearly impossible qualification to fulfill because most countries refused accepting Jewish refugees from Europe. Which is why when he wired Tokyo about providing visas, to Polish refugees, the government's answer was absolutely not. So here he was, he faced a difficult decision. If he defied his government, he faced the loss of his job, disgrace, financial ruin, maybe even death. What would happen to his family? He told his wife, I may have to disobey my government, but if I do not, I will be disobeying God. He obtained permission from the Soviets to keep the embassy open for another 20 days. So he and his wife frantically wrote and signed visas by hand, approximately 300 a day. As the deadline for leaving approached, they sacrificed food and sleep so the others might live. When they were finally forced to close the consulate and leave Lithuania, Sigurhara continued signing visas from the train, throwing them out the window even as the train left the station. He paid a high price for his heroism. He was drummed out of the diplomatic service his family lived in poverty for years and he had to work off jobs just to make ends meet. Unsure most of his life, if anything he did actually matter. Well, it did. Thanks to him, between six and 10,000 Jews survived. Thousands of Jews, as one person put it, were packed on trains bound not for forced labor camps and gas chambers, but for freedom. Historians estimated that over 40,000 people are now descendants those original 6,000. Here's a man that had a post. He had a place of authority, actually, in the government, and had a difficult decision to make. And in the end, he saw the desperate need of the people and said, I've got to do something. Being on mission with God isn't always easy. It is sacrificial. It is costly, sometimes to our jobs and sometimes even to your own life. But If we're not living for his plan and his purposes, then what are we living for? Living for yourself is a dead-end road. Living for him actually produces life, not just here, but for eternity. I share that because every one of us has the power and the authority to write a visa for someone. (laughs) You have the gospel of the kingdom inside of you to share with them. Because right now they are on a train to a place of slavery and eventual death. But if you recognize just because you just have a relationship with Jesus is actually someone's potential opportunity for freedom. People have to receive that freedom, but man, we have the message to deliver. So what's it look like to actually be on mission, church? It just means that we are simply witnesses, which you already are. And that you walk in power and authority that he has given you to just be a witness to people. So here's how we're going to close today. I just want us to have our life computers make the way up here quickly. And here's how I want us to respond. This whole series, we're talking about him and them. We are talking about being, uh, today we're talking about mission, like the mission of God and all his heart. And I'm convinced that there's a lot of people in this room that you actually want to be about that, but there's something holding you back maybe. Maybe you're just discouraged by some attempts you've made. Maybe you don't really think that you're good enough of a witness, that you haven't passed the, the witness test <laughs> in order to feel like, oh, I can actually do this. But can I just say, if Jesus has touched your life in any way and changed you, you are a witness. But the missing piece may be that you've been doing out of your own strength. Some of us maybe need to be prayed over and just say, I want to receive the power of the Holy Spirit in my life because I'm tired of doing this by myself. And some of us are saying, you know, I just need encouragement again. (laughs) Because I want to do this. I just need to be encouraged. So if that's you, wherever you are this morning, come on up here. Come and let someone pray over you. Don't try to do it on your own. Just say, come, someone pray over me because I want to leave here having vision for my workplace again. I want to leave here believing that my roommates can be changed. I want to leave here knowing I actually have the power of Jesus inside of my life to share and to love and encourage people all around me. Wherever you are, don't leave here without knowing that he is for you. He's with you. He's releasing you. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. This is your mission. This is your plan. And we just ask right now that we would be stirred in our hearts that there'd be something come alive in us, God. We just pray, Holy Spirit, would you come and meet us right here, right now? If we feel weak, if we feel discouraged, God, come and meet us in that place of discouragement. Replace it with encouragement. And we feel timid, God, give us boldness. Lord, if we lack vision, would you impart it to us, Lord? Whatever you gotta do, God, so that we can be a people that actually live on mission with you day in and day out, we pray. Come, in Jesus' name.